If you have a Bible, I would love for you to join me in the book of 1 Samuel and the 17th chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 17. <clears throat> we have been studying through uh, some Old Testament scenes, some fairly familiar Old Testament scenes, but establishing this from the outset, that these are not a spiritualized version of Aesop's fables, if you will. The, the Old Testament is not this collection of ancient moral stories. Now, all of them have a moral to teach, but if we think that that's all that they're about, then we miss the whole point. Every Old Testament scripture is ultimately about Jesus. How do we know that? Jesus said so, right? In Luke chapter 24, it said, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. And it was in that moment that these two disciples, if you remember when we started this series, Easter Sunday in Luke chapter 24, went from discouraged, defeated, deflated, just sort of existing guys on their way back to Emmaus, that they, their testimony was, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up our minds and understanding to the scripture? So everybody that walked in this morning, real simple, at the outset, either your heart's on fire or your heart's not. Either it's burning because God set it aflame or it's sort of stone cold dead and and has really no life to it. So I just ask you that on the front end is, is, is your heart set afire by the reality that everything's about Jesus? Now I have to go in and warn you that God doesn't have another match. If, if that doesn't light your heart on fire, he doesn't have this other collection of matches over here. Well, that didn't work. I'll try this. No, all of God's stock is in Christ. There's no plan B, no plan C. Ephesians chapter 1, he's uniting all things together, whether things in heaven or things on earth, in Christ. As he set him, Christ, forth as a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things to, together. So we're in... 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's a very familiar story. In fact, it might be one of the more well-known stories of all the Old Testament, the story of David and who? Goliath. Now, David and Goliath is a great example of what we're talking about. David and Goliath is not really a story about some underdog overcoming the odds, right? Uh, Now, you know the details of the story, no doubt. Uh, There's this smaller guy named David. He goes to fight this nine-foot-tall giant named Goliath who's fierce and menacing. And from the outside looking in, it looked like Goliath would just sort of squash David. And when you watch a sports or you're watching March Madness and some 15 seed beats a two seed in the tournament the first round, they always say the same thing. Oh, it's like David and Goliath. Now, that's... That's, I know where that idea comes from, but David and Goliath is not about an, an, an underdog overcoming the odds. It's not like Rocky Balboa spiritualized, right? David and Goliath is about Jesus overcoming the sinful strongholds in our life. You have a sinful stronghold? Most all of us do. And, and, and you might have done everything you know feasibly to do to get that giant to stop talking or to cast that giant down. David and Goliath is just like Exodus. Remember, Exodus is it a true story? I believe it's a true story. I believe it historically, literally happened that this uh, nation came up out of slavery in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and on their way to the promised land. But it's a picture of Jesus because salvation is getting out of bondage by grace through a mediator in order to be made holy. Amen? That's what Exodus is teaching us. Or, or uh, the big event like Exodus or a smaller book like Ruth. Ruth is an amazing love story. Ruth and Boaz, great story. But it's not just about Ruth and Boaz in their own day and and sort of like a Jane Austen spiritualized book. It's more than that. It's about Jesus as a redeemer who can bring us to life even after we've made decisions leading to death. And, and, And one of the beautiful and glorious things is to see that Jesus is on every page 
of the Old Testament, and he's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I may have said 15, but I meant 17. Do you have a sinful stronghold that has left you in the valley of Elah? Isn't that what's happening here? 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. So there's a fight going on here. And they were gathered at Soka, which belongs to Judah. And we made this point just about every week. Where's the battle taking place? It's not taking place in the Philistine uh, uh, property. It's taking place in the promised land. It's taking place in Judah's territory. And that's what will happen in your life. Now, now this is a message primarily to believers in Jesus Christ. You, you've believed in, in the grace of God as poured out and demonstrated at the cross. That therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's your life. But now, having been saved... There are uh, 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 issues and strongholds left over. A great visual image, one that we've kind of hung our hats on, is in John chapter 11. You remember when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, throughout his ministry, uh, does physical miracles to exhibit and explain spiritual truth. How many of you are visual learners? You can, you can understand it if you can see it. Jesus gave many, many spiritual object lessons. So do you remember in John chapter 11, Lazarus is in the tomb, right? He's been dead, not for three hours. He's been dead for multiple days. In fact, his sisters kind of say, when Jesus says, roll that stone away, they said, well, we might not want to do that because he's been in there several days and it's probably going to smell. And so Jesus just said, well, go on and roll the, 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 the stone away. And then Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And what happened? Lazarus came out. And now you go back and look in John 11 and you'll see this. He came out, but he was still bound up with grave clothes, right? I mean, in those days they would, they would wrap almost like a mummy, as, as we've talked about. They'd, they'd wrap your legs together. They'd wrap your hands. And so Lazarus is coming out, but Lazarus doesn't slam run up, do a cartwheel out of the, out of the tomb. He comes out with grave clothes still on. And so he's probably walking a little bit like this, right? Now question, is he alive? Is he alive? Yes. He's been given life. But does something still need to happen for him? Do, do you want to go on around living like this? Bound up? Probably can't see very well. Imagine him trying to feed himself, right? Can't, can't, can't get any food into his mouth. He comes up. So he's alive. He's fully alive. But he's bound up. And that's a picture of your salvation. You're fully alive. But you come up out of the grave with some old ways, some old attitudes, some old hatreds some old strongholds, some old sins. And for most of us, uh, while we come up, with a, come up out of the grave with a lot of issues, for most of us, there's one issue in particular that looms like a giant above all the others. And that's what David and Goliath is teaching about. Now, you remember when Jesus saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, what did he say? Uh, the Bible says in John 11, he said to some men standing there, go and unbind him. This is one of the great works of, of a church family. This is what we're supposed to be doing. We're, we're to help each other unbind. Now, Lazarus is bound up. He can't unbind himself. He's like, it's like being in a straitjacket. He's got some other people that have got to come alongside him and help him be unbound. One simple principle is, friends, most of us will never be unbound if we try to do that work on our own. And some of us have been there, right? You've got a sinful strong, you've got anger. Some of these things we've talked about. Addiction, pornography, uh, jealousy, bitterness, and you've tried for years and years and years. I don't want to bother anybody or I don't want anybody to know about these things, right? So I'm going to try to deal with it. And, and you might have poked out a pinky, right? You might have poked out a pinky and that's about as far as you've gotten. Be, because 
here's the truth. The stronghold is stronger than you. The stronghold's not stronger than Jesus. And Jesus is the one who said, now, if we're going to unbind you, we've got to get some help in here, right? That's what the church is. Now, we've talked about a number of sinful strongholds over the course of these last six, seven weeks or so. We've talked about anger. That was last Sunday, right? Anger can be a significant stronghold in the heart of somebody's life. Bitterness. We've talked about rejection. We've talked about fear. So we've come to the final Sunday of this study, and and we're going to talk about a giant that oftentimes doesn't get as much airplay, so to speak, as some of the other strongholds. I mean, when we talk about about, uh, addiction, for example, or even something like pornography and anger, these things are readily identifiable, right? They're they're obvious in their implications. Today, we're going to look at one that's honestly um, not as readily identified as a sinful stronghold, but I'll tell you on the front end, I think it might be the case that the stronghold we're going to talk about this morning does more damage to the kingdom of God, prevents the gospel from going forth in power with greater uh, significance and consistency than maybe any other giant that we've talked about so far. But before we jump in and here really identify our giants specifically, let's recall a couple of principles that we've already established during our study. The sinful stronghold, the the real issue is what? It dims the glory of God in your life. They're encamped at the Valley of Elah. Anybody like geography? I like to look at maps. I like geography. Now, we said that Jesus very often does physical miracles in the Gospels to represent spiritual truth. In the Old Testament, one of the object lessons that God often uses is geography, right? We understand coming up out of Egypt. I think it literally happened, but it's geography of leaving a place of slavery, being redeemed by grace, and entering a place of promise. Ruth is an example of that. They left Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean? Literally, city of bread, right? They left the city of bread to go to Moab to get what? Irony of ironies, bread. And then when they got to Moab, all they found was death. So what did they have to do? They had to repent, leave Moab, and go back to Bethlehem. So, so it teaches us. Here's a great geographical spiritual lesson. You're gonna, it's going to be a long wait. It's going to be a long wait for the blessing of bread from God in Moab. Now, that was Ruth's sermon, so we won't go back to that. But some of us need to hear that. Some of us are waiting around in Moab saying, where's the bread? And Jesus says the bread's in Bethlehem. Oh, by the way, when Mary has her baby, where is Jesus born? Not in Moab. He's born in Bethlehem. If you want to be fed with the bread of life, you've got to go to the bread of life. Amen? So here in 1 Samuel 15, let's get our, uh, uh, I keep saying 15. 2 Samuel 15 is another famous uh, chapter about David. And I keep getting that confused in my mind, I think. But 1 Samuel 17 Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So let's get our geography. Where are they? They're in a valley. They're in the valley of Elah. They're gathered, sort of like we're gathered today. Did you know it's possible to gather and gather and gather and still be encamped in the valley of Elah? They've even got, they've even got a battle cry. We read that last week, did we? We've got our battle cries, right? We just sang some of them. Glorious truths. But did you know it's possible to gather with the people of God, to lift up a war cry, and still be encamped, intimidated, and under the dominion of a giant? That happens in many of our lives. Might be true of your life this morning. And here comes a giant that doesn't jump off the page 
but it's a significant giant nonetheless. Not as readily seen as dangerous to say anger or lust or jealousy, but just as dangerous to the soul as any of those. And, And by the way, that's why it's so dangerous, is we don't see it as dangerous. Let's read together here, beginning in verse 12. And we're going to read 12 to 16, and I'm going to see if you can identify the giant. All right, so here we go. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the, name, in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest of sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Let's pray together. Father, we believe that all Scripture is inspired of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses all of Scripture to point us to Jesus. First of all, for our need of Jesus. So I pray for anyone that's here gathered today that's never truly submitted their life to the Lordship of Christ, that you would, by your word, communicate to them how loved they are by you. In fact, you love them so much, and yet while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. And it's by grace we are saved through faith. It's your gift. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And now, Father, I pray for anybody here that is a believer in Jesus. But there is a stronghold, sinful giant that it's not just gone on for 40 days. It might have gone on for 40 years in their life. It intimidates them, has dominion over them, and they are not today enjoying the abundant life that Christ came to provide. We want to be as free as Christ died to make us. If the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. We want to be free from these sinful strongholds. So I pray today, if anybody's enslaved by the giant that we're going to talk about today, that you would help us to see how dangerous it is, and then in Christ we seek to be free of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you saw it or not, the giant. Sometimes it doesn't jump right off the page. Well, Jesus should jump right off the page. A father sends his shepherd son from Bethlehem to help somebody. Does that sound pretty familiar? That's a picture of Jesus. But, but as he goes, look what happens. Verse 17, Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. So if your brothers are well, uh, bring some token from them. Now, many of the giants we've talked about jump right off the page. Anger, for example. For example, now Eliab's anger burned against David. That's just a few verses later, right? But, but here's the giant. We'll go on and call it by name, and then we'll say why we are saying it's so dangerous. It's the giant of comfort and complacency. Comfort and complacency. Can, can you identify that that's a giant in your life? Well, let's get our picture here. What's going on here? What's going on in these verses? The army 
is engaged in a battle against Goliath. Goliath has come out, look at it, what it says. Verse, verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, that's one giant fear. We've talked about that one. But this giant's coming out. And then it says here in verse 16, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. D- David, I don't know if you realize this or not, uh, David's been traveling back and forth. His father keeps sending him, and, and his father's sending him to do what? Make sure they got enough to eat, right? But make sure that they're sort of taken care of. And in fact, like most fathers would, he says, you know, just let me know how they're doing. I mean, any parent with a child on a battlefield would know how this, this would affect your heart and the way that you think. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So they're drawn up for battle, but you see, they're, they're not marching against the enemy at all. In fact, what they're doing is they're encamped in the Valley of Elah, and they've decided just to make a go for it. They've just decided, well, I'm not really going to go against Goliath. Uh, I got some brothers, I got some friends around here, and, uh, you know, my focus is actually just that I'd have enough to eat. Now, now here's why the danger of complacency is so significant. It's possible. It's possible that you'd come to a point in your walk with God where your focus is really not so much on the kingdom of God going forth. You're just encamped, and, and you'd honestly be fine if he just sends you a few little blessings. Just give me a little bit of cheese, right? You know what he says? Just, just give me some cheese, and just give me, uh, give, give me uh, just enough to make it through today. Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Question. Do you view Jesus as a giant slaying victor? Or do you view Jesus as an errand runner who just needs to keep the cupboards stocked and get you through today? You see why it's such a significant issue is as long as they had just a little bit they were fine and none of them zero zero of them was going to stand up to Goliath this is amazing is 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 their goal became let's just keep the status quo right let's just keep the status quo in fact I don't even know if any of them said it but the idea was present let's let's not badger Goliath he's got this speech right and it's been going on for 40 days, and he's going to come down. He's going to challenge us. And if we just stay here, we got some cheese, we got some parched grain. Let's just stay here. And I want you to see that everybody was fine with that plan, except one person, right? Everybody was fine if that's what they did until David showed up. Now, pop quiz question Who does David represent in the story? Jesus. And I have to be honest with you, I, I think if we're not careful, We'll adopt that strategy for our lives. I just want to make sure my children are okay. I just want to make sure we got enough food to eat today. I, if we got some cheese and we got some brothers around us and we sing our war cry every once in a while, we're fine. Just don't go badger Goliath and let's just stay encamped in the valley of Elah. And that would be a fine status quo idea until we insert the glory of God is at stake, right? And then that changes everything. Everybody was fine with this except for David. And I just want you to see, I just want you to see that David 
doesn't slay Goliath until after he overcame this giant. So you see, look at his brothers there. He, they, they name him by name. Here they are. Three eldest, verse 13, of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. They followed him to battle. And the, the irony is they followed him to battle, but they won't battle. It's, it's like Jesus has led you into freedom, but you won't be free, right? It's Lazarus bound up and saying, I'm, I'm okay with this life. Can he put a little cheese in my mouth and a little parched, parched bread? Now, here, here's where they are. Here's where they are. They're encamped in the Valley of Elah. So here is their, if, if you want to use the spiritual metaphor, they're not quite in captivity, but they're also not quite free, right? They're not enslaved yet by the Philistines. They're encamped in the Valley of Elah. So, so, so they're, they've got a structure. They've got leadership in place. Uh, they've got, to a degree, some freedom. But they're not victorious. They're not gaining any ground. They're just encamped. And if we're not careful, my friends, that is how we will live our entire life. They, they made a status quo sort of peace terms. They didn't, they didn't give Goliath peace terms. They still identify him as his enemy, as their enemy. But for all intents and purposes, uh, they're sort of like, uh, let's just, you know, do a, do a deal here. Well, you just stay over there and I'll stay here, but I'm not going to go over there. And, and that's, that's why the kingdom of God often doesn't go forth in great power. Because the people of God said, well, if I just got a little bit of freedom, that's not as bad as being enslaved. But I want you to know this morning that Jesus Christ is the captain of an army that does not, that does not encamp in the Valley of Elah, but goes forth in great victory and in power. And he said, the gates of hell will not overcome the church, my church, my kingdom. Amen? But we just said, you know what, okay, there's the gates of hell. We'll just encamp here in the Valley of Elah. We can't do that. We can't do that. Not quite in captivity, not quite free either. Jesus is not a a son of God who runs errands to keep our cupboard stocked. He is the son of God who comes to slay Goliath. So let me give you four or so things that I think help us wrestle with the giant of, of complacency. Complacency. When I was thinking about this sermon uh, a couple of years ago at our house, um, this probably happens in many of your homes too, right on our front porch was this little nest. And in April or so, the springtime, the little chicks, have you have this happen? I don't know. You know, I'm not, I'm not an, what is it, ornithologist? Is that someone who studies birds? Somebody can correct me about that after the service. But um, I, I don't really know what kind of birds they were. Can you tell me? Robins? Finch. See, I don't, I don't know anything. Little finches were in the nest, and me and Julie, and I thought, you know, I don't even know what kind of bird they were, but it was still pretty cool that you'd watch Mama Bird, right? Mama Bird come and, and put the little, I mean, Mama Bird does all the work, little baby birds. And, but, but then when I first saw it, I thought it was kind of mean that uh, these birds were getting a little too big for the nest. And you know where I'm going with this, right? What does Mama Bird come and do? You've got to get up out of this nest, right? You're not, the bird wasn't born to sit in the nest, What's the bird born for? To fly. To fly. Now, God makes all things for his glory, so we'll put it this way. A bird that's too big for the nest and keeps sitting in the nest doesn't glorify God. You know what glorifies God? A bird that's too big for the nest that gets up out of the nest and starts flying across the sky. So you just think about that the next time you see a bird flying in the sky. Just thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that that bird is not sitting in a nest somewhere too big for the nest. He went and flew. And I'm just encouraging you. I think that's what God wants for many of your lives. You're a little too big for the nest. You got it. Now, now, you know, get, get your wings going, get strengthened up, 
get, get some supplies from your father, but at some point you've got to get up out of the nest. They're nesting in the valley of Elah. Don't spend your life that way. So here's some things that got to get you going. Get out of the nest. Number, number one, we remember that we are saved by the great discomfort of Jesus. Would anybody agree with this statement? The rugged cross is our only hope. The rugged cross is our only hope. When Jesus came to the earth, I mean, he's in control of all things. Does he, does he come to the earth seeking comfort and convenience and complacency? He's born in Bethlehem. He doesn't kick his feet back and say, oh, man, I made this whole place. No, no, the Bible says he made himself in the form of a servant, taking on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We'll look at that scripture in more detail in just a moment in Philippians chapter Two, we're saved because of his great discomfort. Now, if Jesus saves us by his great discomfort, does he save us in order that in this life we would be extremely comfortable? No, that doesn't even make any sense, does it? Hey, anybody up for a little bit of theology? Can we do some theology? Anybody up for some theology? I've got to get a little group participation this morning, all right? Let's not be sitting there complacent on a sermon against complacency, all right? amen? So, so here's some theology. We've been over this before. Hey, if you're saved, amen, you're saved by grace, right? You're saved by grace. Now, there's three components if you want to break it down to your salvation. Something that when you're saved, it happens in a moment. Something that when you're saved begins to happen over the course of your lifetime. And something that's still coming for us in eternity. In other words, if you're a believer right now, something has happened to you. Something is happening to you. And something will happen. Does anybody remember what has already happened to us? If you're a believer right now today, what's already happened? You have been justified. You have been justified justified. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can say in Romans 5 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You're forgiven. That's what justification means. You're forgiven. You're declared not guilty. When did that happen if you're a believer? The moment you were born again, the moment you were saved. He separated our sins as far as east is from west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. You have been justified. All right, we'll, we'll use little stations here on the platform. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, something's happening, something's ongoing, something's happening right now. You are being, anybody know? Help me out. Sanctified. That's happening right now. Now, sanctified is not a word we throw around very much, although I think we, we should because the Bible certainly uses it a lot. You're being sanctified. What does that mean? You're being made more into the image of Jesus. And, and hey, sanctification is, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you feel like, man, uh, I've made a lot of progress, and then there's a setback, and then there's a progress, and a step forward and a step back. But over the course of your lifetime, there ought to be evidence that you're being made more like the image of Jesus. There ought to be what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. You'll know a tree by its fruits, right? What are you producing in your life? Galatians 5, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? That's ongoing, and until the day you die, God's still going to do that work. So you have been justified. You, you are being sanctified. And then there's one thing left. You will be glorified. You will be glorified. Me- meaning that, that you're going to get a resurrection body and you're going to go to heaven forever. And that's still to come. Another way of putting this would be justification. You are saved from the penalty of your sin. Amen? You don't bear the penalty of your sin anymore. You just go memorize Colossians 1. It'll tell you. He took our debt and nailed it to the cross, and we bear it no more. Justification, we're saved from the penalty of sin. How about sanctification? It's what's ongoing now. It's what this whole sermon series is about. We're being saved from the power of sin. 
Sin shall no longer be your master. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Oh, isn't it? That's where great joy comes from when we're having great victory over sin. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit as well in our life. Now, there's some, there's some choices and some actions that you've got to take in cooperation with the Spirit. Amen? And, and then, glorification, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Hallelujah, what a day that'll be, right? You're not going to open up in a newspaper ever again and see some tragedy, some horrific event, saved from the presence of sin. Now, I was thinking on that, and, and I think this is a common strategy of these sinful stronghold giants, is to mix up those verb tenses. I think that's what, I think, I think people who wrestle, I think people who wrestle with the giant of fear, for example, they're operating under an assumption that there will, I will be justified. There's something that will happen, and then, oh, no, 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 you have been justified, amen? You have been forgiven. You have been redeemed. You don't have to live under this constant fear. Oh, I blew it again. I messed up again. No, no, no. Not when you got your theology straight. Now, sanctification is not a license to sin. So, I mean, plenty of verses we could quote on that, too, in Romans if we die to sin, shall we go on living in it? No, no, no. Sanctification is, is a process, however. So you get a stronghold of fear and say, I don't even, I don't know. I don't know if I'm forgiven. I don't know if he loves me. I don't know if he's, no, no. You always let the cross speak loudest in your life. Now, complacency, complacency begins to see the promises that are future as if they are present. And a huge lie called the prosperity gospel has done this. These future tense blessings that are to come in Christ, we want to apply them here. In other words, put it, put it in the, couch it in the language of 1 Samuel 15. Don't encamp in the valley of Elah. Get up, get moving, and get going. We overcome the giant of complacency when we remember that we're saved by the great discomfort of Jesus. Secondly, we're, 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 we're also overcoming that giant when we remember the point of our lives is the fame and glory of Jesus. You were not saved to make much of yourself. You were saved so that you could make much of Jesus. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. I want you to see this right off the page. Luke chapter 9. We remember the point of our lives is the glory of, of Jesus. Now, remember in the camp, encamped at the Valley of Elah? Hey, they could have said, we got plenty to eat. We got plenty of friends. We got a camp. We got a war chant. Complacency sets in if we think my own freedom is the motivation. No, no, my own freedom is not so much the motivation as. What does David fight for? That you will know that my God is the one true God. It's the glory of God. Look what happens here when, um, look what happens here when people are bound up with comfort and complacency and, and they meet Jesus. That's what I want you to see, okay? They, they've got some giants called comfort and complacency in their lives. It says in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These are striking statements from Jesus, aren't they? I mean, somebody comes up, somebody comes up and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And I, I got to be honest, we're going to have an invitation here in a moment. When I stand down here, if somebody were to walk down the aisle and shake my hand and say, brother, I'm ready to follow Jesus wherever, wherever he might go. My tendency would be to say, amen, brother. That's not what Jesus says, though, is it? The Bible says something incredible about Jesus. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but John chapter 3. Je- Jesus is able to look in the heart of a man and see what's really there here's what comes out i'll follow you wherever you go and then we can determine what was true of his heart on the basis of what jesus says jesus said well foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests and jesus knows if it's a finch or a robin or whatever it is but he says the son of man has nowhere to lay his head what's he saying my friend following me is not comfortable it's not comfortable you're in luke 9 57 Look up here in Luke 9, 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, in those days, you don't have Holiday Inn, you don't have Hampton Inn, you don't have Motel 60, you got nothing. So when Jesus and his disciples would go into a village, they were 100% dependent on their hospitality. Somebody's going to give me anywhere to sleep tonight. And what happened in the Samaritan village? Everybody shut their door and said, you're not welcome here. And what Jesus is telling this man is fresh off that scene, right? He just came out of being rejected. He says, well, you're not going to make it because you're still too tied to comfort. You can't be my disciple. You see, there's Jesus sets some terms. And aren't you thankful that Jesus sets the terms at the beginning? He didn't spring this on this guy later on. Oh, well, you know, you didn't know that this was what was really following. Jesus is always very clear about what's involved in following. If any man will come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his own cross, not take up his own couch, not take up his own lazy boy, not take up his own cot. Take up your own cross. Crosses are the most uncomfortable thing that there is. He says, you got to take that up if you're going to follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. And some of us live in this illusion that we can follow him without doing those things. And he couldn't be any more clear about it, could he? Follow me is not the first thing he said. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. I tell you, if you're seeking to follow Christ and seeking comfort in the world or the approval of the world or everybody's going to like you and everybody's going to, you know, yeah, you're about Jesus. No, 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 no. This is quickly turning in our culture, right? It's getting increasingly more uncomfortable if you're going to hold to the word and hold to the gospel and, and, and exalt Christ. Now, you don't have anywhere to lay your head to die. So, so it's, not, it's not comfortable. It's not convenient. That's the next issue. Follow me. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said, let's leave the dead to bury their own dead. That seems almost rude, doesn't it? What's he saying? Leave the spiritually dead to bury the dead. You've got to go get some people and proclaim the gospel so that you can get them spiritually alive before they die. He's talking about a matter of urgency. I mean, we're so bogged down with things that are not urgent. We fill up all of our time with uh, television programming and entertainment and can't wait for this movie to come out. And people all around us don't know Christ. I said, no, no, you're about trivial matters. Jesus said, let the dead go bury their own dead. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's not comfortable. It's not convenient. It's really not complicated. 
Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, that's always an indication that you're not ready to follow Jesus. I will follow you, but first, let me say farewell to those at my home. It doesn't seem like an outrageous request on behalf of this guy, but Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you underline in your Bible, you might want to underline those words, no one, because when you're encamped at the Valley of Eli, you start to get the notion that you're the exception to the rule. Two other things real fast. Two other things real fast that, that liberate us from the giant of complacency and convenience is, is third. We remember that life is brief. Forty days were wasted sitting on a hillside listening to a giant that really did not have authority and dominion over them. Forty days when the news went out. I don't really know if the God of Israel is really all that strong anymore. Forty days, the people are encamped in the valley. Forty days, they get together and they sing their war cry and they go back. But for 40 days, Goliath marches out. Forty straight days. Forty days wasted with no one believing God was bigger than the giant. And some of us will spend 40 days, 40 months, 40 years saying, I'll obey God when, I'll obey God when. Life is brief. Very simple strategy of the enemy is to uh, is just to fill up your life with a series of questions. We've done this before, but I'll do it again. We just had graduate Sundays, right? High school graduates heading off to college. So, so you remember back, if you're not there now, when you were 16, 17, 18 years old, you start getting that question, right? What are you going to do when you graduate? And then, and then you start filling out applications, and you're looking for maybe some scholarship money, and you're going to go to college. And you finally, I did. I'm going, I'm going to state, or I'm going to Carolina, or I'm going to go to Nash, or I'm going to go to work. Or you finally get that question asked, right? You finally get an answer to that question. <sighs> finally have somebody to tell someone. Now you get to college. Well, what are you going to major in, right? I just got here. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm good at yet. What are you, what are you, you going to major in? And you finally, you go to your counselor, you go to your friends, you pray, and you, all right, finally got a major. And then you get to your senior year. What's the question? What, what are you going to do when you graduate? Where are you going to work? Get out of college. Maybe find work. Maybe. When, when are you going to get married? It's about time to get married, isn't it? Get married. What's the next question? When are you going to have children? Are y'all thinking about, are y'all thinking about, next question, who's going to change the diaper? That becomes the real question at that point, no. no. It's not too long, you survive these early years of childhood, I mean, you're just trying to keep your head above the water, and then you start getting, oh no, where, where's your oldest going to go to college? You know, I mean, now the cycle is repeating itself. Now where your oldest going to go, and you go, that, that, when are you going to retire, and then you get retired, and then if you're not careful, you've strung along question after question that you're trying to answer that the culture is asking you. And you know what? Another way of saying it, that the giant of complacency is asking you, when are you going to go proclaim the kingdom? That got lost somewhere along there, right? Maybe back in high school or maybe back in college or maybe back when you first got married or maybe back when you had children or maybe back. And then if you're not careful, you get to the end of your life and say, I didn't ever go proclaim the kingdom. Nobody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Life is short. Some of us, if we're not careful, we'll go through our whole life saying, I'll obey when it seems more logical, when it seems more possible, when when, when, when you might have another opportunity. Complacency sets in and you'll waste your life. Number four and final, 
we can be liberated from complacency when we understand what hangs in the balance. Look back with me. We'll finish where we started in Second, First Samuel, chapter fifteen. We might have to do Second Samuel seventeen next week because I keep thinking about it. So, First Samuel chapter fifteen. Oh, I keep saying it wrong. First oh, Samuel seventeen. I just want to read these verses and you'll see. Chapter 50. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. The giants can go down. The giants can fall. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from uh, Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, Whose son is this? You want some good news? When the giants fall under the power and dominion of Jesus, do you know what question starts getting asked? Whose son is this? Whose son is this? Who is this that showed up? And we tried everything we knew to try to combat whatever it is that we're trying to get. We read all the books. We went to the seminars. Uh, we spent money. And then something happened. And that giant fell down. And the question that everybody's circling around, whose son is this? Can I tell you whose son it is? He's the son of the Most High. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a shepherd come from Bethlehem, not to encamp with you in the Valley of Eli. No, no, he's not up for that. He's not looking to encamp for 40 days, have a, have a little time, and then go on his way. He's headed to the battlefield, and he's taking Goliath out. He's chopping his head off. He's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to have a, a, a party, a celebration. That's what's going to happen. And then everybody's going to look around and say, who is this? You see, that's the glory of God in your life. God is glorified when the sinful stronghold in your life that has you under captivity, at worst and at best, encamped in complacency, it falls down, and everybody says, what just happened around here? What hangs in the balance? We're liberated from complacency when we understand what hangs in the balance is other people having a right perspective of Jesus, understanding what he's really about. And God forbid that we'd be a generation or we'd be a church that sends a message out that our Savior is encamped in the Valley of Elah and his priority is just to sort of make it a little bit more comfortable for us on our way to heaven. That's not what he's about. It's not what he's about at all. What he's about is going forth and casting the giants down, saying, I am being sanctified. It's not past tense. It's not something that's already happened. But you've got to fight. You've got to fight for truth, too. It's also not all future tense. It, it's, it's better be happening in your life right now. Don't waste your life in camp to the valley of Eli. You see, the whole nation's blessed. The whole nation's blessed. It's not just about you. Your whole family might be waiting on you for these giants to fall. This church might be waiting for you. This city, this, this nation. In fact, in, in many ways, I think the only hope we've got here in the United States of America is if the people of God start seeing those giants, these strongholds, come 
down. Let's stand together and we're going to pray together. And, and then I'm going to invite you to not be complacent, not be comfortable during the invitation. You might have a burden on your heart, a concern in your life. And when we begin to sing and have an invitation, the invitation is for us to respond to the word of God. In, in some ways, in some ways, I think it's a window into our hearts about the, the giant of complacency is even how we respond to something like an invitation. A complacent person says, well, I'm just going to wait out these five minutes and then I get to leave, right? I'm just asking you, as you bow your head, to just be still before the Lord and ask him, is the giant of complacency present in my life? Have I settled for less than the abundant life that Christ died to give me? Am I not necessarily in captivity, but I'm also not marching forth in victory? Have I come encamped in the valley of Eli? And if the Father will just send me some parched grain, interesting phrase, isn't it? Some cheese that I can pass along to my command, and I'd be fine with that. I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we'll have our time of invitation. You might want to come to the front if you've got a burden, a concern on your heart directly related to what we preached this morning or just a burden that you're carrying this morning. I'm going to stand right here at the front. If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to respond today. I'll stand right here, graciously willing to talk to anybody who's got a question about Jesus, question about salvation. Father, forbid it. That in my own life, in my family, in the life of my church family, that I would spend all my days encamped in the valley of Elah, believing, experiencing less than the full victory that Jesus was crucified on the cross to deliver to me, to us to our church family. Father, complacency and comfortable living is as dangerous a giant and in some ways more dangerous than any one of the others that we've talked about. I pray that you'd give us wisdom and discernment to see if it's got its clutches in our hearts and our minds and that you'd liberate us. That we wouldn't be seeking convenience. We wouldn't be seeking comfort. He who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. God forbid that we have one foot in the direction of following you and one foot still firmly planted in loving and holding to uh, this quickly passing world. Lead us during this invitation. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.